circulating around the cards. Um, please be sure to sign them. And then I think it kind of is a central point. We'll turn them into Phil, and then Mary will... will no, you don't get them. Okay. Uh, Mary will get them from you after the service, and then we'll put them together, and then we'll, we'll hand them out to you guys. So, Oh, they're on the front seat? So please sign it. Thank you. We'll just leave it there then. Uh, so please sign it uh, for both of them. Appreciate it, Bill. Tell you what, why don't we just trade places? <laughs> no, okay. I didn't think so. Okay. First John chapter 2. First John chapter 2 is built obviously upon First John chapter 1. In the original letter, there were not chapters and verses, so the thought is really continuing. Um, although, while the thought is continuing, there's a little bit of a shift in the thinking, and I'll bring that to your attention this morning. Um, but I'm, again, as I always say, I'm really thankful for the... Boy, those look good. Um... I'm really thankful for the uh, chapters and verses because I'd never be able to find anything if it weren't for that. Uh, I don't have an ESV to read along with you, but anyway. But uh, anyway, I really like that version. Uh, it's a really good version. And so who knows, one of these days I may switch. I've got several different versions, and I read from them all. I really like reading from different versions of the Bible. But uh, Jude, or uh, I'm in Jude. I should be in First John. First John chapter 2, I'm just going to look at two verses this morning, where uh, John says here in, in verse 1, it says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for moving upon the Apostle John's heart to write this letter. We'd ask, Lord, that by your spirit that you would give us ears to hear that which you desire to say to us individually and collectively as a church this morning. So fill us, Lord, we pray with your Holy Spirit that we might hear, that we might receive. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit as well, that I not only might receive, but might be able to impart that which you desire to speak into our lives this morning. We confess again, Lord, Christ alone, the cornerstone, and the work that you have done in our lives, the work that you are continuing to do. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless your word to our hearts this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. So, it's, it's interesting where, where in the second chapter, John becomes much more personal in his writing, and he refers to the, the people that he's writing to, and it could very well be the church in Ephesus. Uh, he was there in Ephesus at the latter part of his life. Uh, it was actually after he was released uh, believed anyway, it was believed that it was after he was released from the island of Patmos, which is when he wrote the book of Revelation. And, and by this time, he's a very old guy, uh, very old man. 
And uh, uh, so just about everybody, well, probably everybody in the church is much younger than him, and perhaps he might have led some of them to Christ. Uh, Maybe he didn't, but the fact of him being an eyewitness, as he spoke about in the first chapter, uh, puts him in in this really kind of... uh, fatherly authority and he 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 looks at the people with a with a term of endearment he's not looking down upon them but it's it's a very strong term of endearment uh that he has for the people that he's writing to and refers to them as his dear uh little children uh these things i write to you now notice uh at at the beginning of chapter one uh he's mainly using uh the plural pronoun we talking about we being what we have heard what we have seen Verse 1 of chapter 1, what we have looked at, what our hands have handled. But here, instead of using a a plural pronoun referring to we or ours or us, he becomes very personal, and he refers to himself. So he's using a singular pronoun, the singular pronoun I. Why do I bring that up? Because I think it's important, particularly in this letter, with, with what John is saying is when he's using the, the plural pronouns, he's speaking doctrinally. He's speaking theologically. He's talking about those things that the early church has formed and gained understanding on, which I think gives us a hint that doc, doctrine, doctrine is never formulated, if I can use that word, is never formed in a vacuum. It's never formed in the closet. If all of a sudden you have this incredible revelation and it goes against the grain of what the church has believed, guess who's probably wrong? It's probably not the tradition of the church. It's probably you or the person who had this all of a sudden, this, this, this bolt of lightning. Because Satan masquerade at times as what? An angel of light, does he not? So he's using the personal pronoun we. Doctrine, theology is really best developed communally. And sometimes hammered out, sometimes argued out. Um rather than, than just being one person's idea. But notice when he, he shifts here and uses the singular pronoun I, he's speaking pastorally. He's speaking pastorally. And, and it's, it, there's a difference between, between a group gathering together to collect their thoughts and their ideas of what doctrine is, but, but the thing is, is... is when you are relating to someone one-on-one, depending upon the situation, of course, but when you are relating to someone one-on-one pastorally, it's a one-person-to-one-person exchange. And pastoral work at times is very different than, than the proclamation of of teaching, the proclamation of doctrine. What I'm doing here is not so much pastorally as I'm being a a teacher according to the book of Ephesians um, chapter 4. When I deal with people one-on-one, I'm now dealing with them much more pastorally. When you deal with people one-on-one, you are dealing with them pastorally. 
right? Where we talked about when we went through the, the five or fourfold ministries of the apostles, the evangelists, the um, prophet, the pastor, teachers, there's the, the, the uppercase and the lowercase, the uppercase being the office of the apostle or the evangelist or the prophet, and the lowercase is the function. John here is being very pastoral now in this particular letter. And he says to them, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Now, he's speaking from the reference of what he just told them in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message I've declared, uh, the message which we have heard from him and declare to you. Um, And and then he says, if we say we have no sin, we we deceive ourselves in verse 8 of chapter 1. And the truth is not in us. Okay? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then he tells us again in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him, that is, we make God to be a liar. And his word is not in us. In some respects, what is John telling, him, telling them then in verse 1 of chapter 2? And he says, I write these things that you won't sin. Well, wait a minute. You just said if we don't sin, then we're a liar. Is he contradicting himself? Follow where I'm going on this? Is he contradicting himself? Does it read like he's contradicting? I think it reads like he's contradicting himself. But is he contradicting himself? No, he's not. What he is essentially saying to them is, I'm writing these things so that you will not sin by believing that you don't sin. Follow that? You will not sin by believing that you don't sin. I've, I've known some national... I'm not going to mention names. I'm almost tempted, but I won't. Um, especially ones in heaven now, I believe, and so now he knows better. But uh, they, I, national figures in the church who, who would get up and proclaim that they went through periods of time where they did not sin. The looks on some of your faces is priceless. The problem was that those people bought it hook, line, and sinker, a lot of them. Yeah, and, and I thought about that, and God, I hate to tell you this, and I shouldn't tell you this. I want to use, boy, I wanted to use somebody else as an example here because it would feel a whole lot more comfortable. But it, at times, it's like I can't help but not sin, it seems, right? And, it, I, and I know that some of you, stare at the ceiling here, I know that some of you are the same way. That's our natural bent. <laughs> some of you are smiling and laughing now. But anyway, that's our natural bent, is it not? It is. It's our natural bent because if you say you do not have sin, then you deceive yourself. I talked about that at length last week where where people walk around deceived because it's not my fault. It's their fault. I haven't sinned here. They sinned here. And they walk in deception. And then therefore they also make God a liar and their word is not in him. In other words, what does that mean? The word has not penetrated their hearts. They might have read it forwards, backwards, and even sideways, but it hasn't penetrated their hearts. And that's one of the things that I like. I, I like uh, it, when I pray, just reading God's word to him, re- praying God's word, because it, it, there's something, especially Psalm 51. You guys know what Psalm 51 is about? Psalm 51, what's it about? It's about what? Well, it's about sin, but it's also about what? The R word. Repentance. Which means restoration, by the way. If you've read that chapter, and I know you have many times. But, but 
especially when I read Psalm, 50, uh, Psalm 51, there are days when I read that in my prayer time that I can barely get through it. And it's just like, oh my goodness, I'm just so miserable, you know. And, and thank God, thank God for the blood of Christ that, 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 that John talked about here. The blood of Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Because if we confess our sins, chapter 1, verse 9, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, he's describing what he talks about in verse 2. Excuse me, verse 1 still of chapter 2 of Jesus' work as your advocate. I'll get into that in a minute. So John is saying here in verse 1 of chapter 2, I'm writing these things that you don't sin. In other words, number one, that you recognize that in fact you do sin, but you also recognize that you have an out. That you have the forgiveness of sins because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. It wasn't, I started putting this together. That's part of why I wanted to introduce that new song, singing about the blood of Christ. Because the blood of Christ speaks a better word about who you are and who I am. The blood of Christ is the final word of who we are. I may mess up a lot of things a lot of times, and, and, and yet, even, even in that, that's not my final word in, on my life. It's the blood of Christ who, who, who has shed his blood for me, who has covered my sins. And, and so it's recognizing that, that, that God made a provision. I was listening to a guy, and I, I'm not even going to tell you his name because I don't want you to go listen to him. Well, maybe I should and let you think for yourself. Uh, but he's a... Uh, in his mid-80s, um, and, and he, he's to, a total deconstruction of what or how the Bible is interpreted. And, and, and trying to talk about how the, the blood of Jesus Christ was not necessary. Well, my first impression was to do what? Turn it off. But you know what? You learn from your, you learn from your adversaries if you sit and listen to them. You know, I'm thinking the whole time, I'm like, I just got to listen and I've got to learn other than the fact that this is total nonsense. But I wanted to hear out of his mouth, not from someone else's. But the idea of not sinning here is recognizing who Jesus is, what he has done, and the provision that he has done for you and for me and for us because as we looked at we looked at on Wednesday night as we're going through the book of Ephesians the flesh does not get better even though you might be walking in the spirit your fleshly human nature does not get better it gets worse and what i've found at times is is, is i'm starting to recognize it more to, so i can put it in the closet you know what i mean so to speak Starting to recognize those, those things that are welling up inside and I'm, I'm thinking about it. I was like, okay, I'm just going to shut up now and not respond. Because my human nature does not get better. It, doesn't, it gets worse. It is the work of the Spirit in our lives. The new man in Christ that Paul talked about with the Romans. We talked about in Ephesians. He even talked about it in First and Second Corinthians. That new person that he is continuing to develop in you. 
And no wonder he wrote Romans 7 where he says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. Because there's that warring. There's that warring, the, the battle going on between the two natures. But he writes these things to us so that we would not sin. In other words, and again, remember as I talked about this the last couple of weeks as we've looked at this book, is that John is writing in response to false doctrine that was already being taught uh, in the early church about this higher knowledge. And, and this, this higher way of understanding the, the, the Hebrew scriptures and understanding the gospel narratives. And he, he's bringing it, bringing it back down to, to put our feet back on the ground, so to speak. So he writes that, that, uh, that we may not sin, but if anyone does sin. So have you sinned today? Don't nod your head, yes. Who hasn't sinned already today, all right? So if anyone has sinned, so this applies, I think, to every one of us here, myself included, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Boy, there, that's, that, that, that sentence right there is just a ton of, of not only encouragement pastorally, but there's a ton in there doctor, uh, doctorally as well. We have an advocate. What's an advocate? Someone who stands in another person's stead or in another person's place. You know what I like about this particular word in the Greek? It's the, it's the Greek word uh, parakletos, which is pronounced, if you've never studied Greek, or parakletos, if you have studied Greek and want to try to impress people anyway. Um, pronounce it either way you wish. I don't care. Um, It's the same word that is used in the book of John, his gospel, John 14, verse 16, where Jesus is speaking, and he says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. And then uh, Jesus goes on to refer to this helper as the, uh, who is the Holy Spirit, refers to him also as the comforter. This word comforter, this word helper, which is another name for the Holy Spirit, is the same word here in the Greek that we have translated as advocate. That's the parakletos. So here John is calling Jesus the same thing that Jesus called the Holy Spirit. Same title. And we have an advocate. We have a comforter. We have a helper with the Father. And that is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the helper that will abide with us forever, Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. Again, as I mentioned last Sunday, another name for um, the Holy Spirit is also the Spirit of Christ. Three and one, all right? Separate, but one. How do you explain that? 
don't, I'm not going to get into that this morning. The Trinity is, to me, I, I still wrestle with it, but, but, I, but I know that the Bible declares it. I know the Bible declares the Father is God. The Bible declares Jesus is God. The Bible declares the Holy Spirit is God. And, and, and so I, I just rest in what the Bible has declared, even though it's beyond my understanding. Although I think I can raise a pretty decent argument biblically to defend that position. But we have an advocate with the Father, which is Jesus Christ. And he refers to him as the righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous. Now that, that title really struck me. We don't call him that much. Maybe we should. Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus the Messiah. Christ meaning Messiah. Jesus the Messiah the righteous. So I, I, I got into it. I got into some word study on, on this particular word righteous. And, and it, a lot of diff, it, there's a lot of different meanings about it. It's a very broad word. It could also be translated just. Jesus Christ, the just. And it, it, it refers also to this idea of being the upright one. That's another way you could translate this. Jesus Christ, the upright one. In Acts chapter, um, Acts chapter 22, verse 14, Paul is referring to Jesus here as the just one. So he is the just one. He is the righteous one. Um, and and as, I, as, I, as I thought about this, and, and, and to try to, to, to give some thought to Jesus Christ and his righteousness, my hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and what? Righteousness. We sang it this morning. So, as I brought this out the last couple of weeks, and stay with me because this is a little, this is, I'm not sure I got a great handle on it. When I don't have a great handle on something, I, sometimes I wonder if I can really even explain it well. But again, who Jesus is is also what he imparts or gives to us. Now, I've talked about that when I talked about eternal life two weeks ago when it, the, the scripture here in, in 1 John chapter 1 refers to him as the eternal life. He is the eternal life who gives eternal life, all right? I think that helps a little bit. He is the righteous one who gives righteousness. He is the just one who gives a just standing to those who have put their trust in him. So I thought about this idea of the just one, and, and to me that took, us back, took me back to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, where, where um, I always misquote it for some reason, so I'm going to read it to you. Habakkuk 2, verse 4. It says, Behold the proud. Now there's this, I want to bring out of this verse. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him. Now, what did I say earlier about this, this uh, uh, one way to translate this, uh, this word righteous as the upright one? With the proud, Habakkuk tells us he is not upright. So it's complete opposite. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by Faith, the righteous, you could translate it this way. 
the righteous. By the way, in the Septuagint, it's the same Greek word that we see here in 1 John um, chapter 2, verse 1, where we have the word righteous. It's the same Greek word that, that is translated just here in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And the New Testament discusses this particular verse three times in three different books. Where you have in, in the book of Romans chapter 1 verse 17, Paul, the, a lot of the book of Romans is Paul defining who the just, who the righteous are. And then, and then Galatians refers to this verse in Galatians chapter 3 verse 11 where he's talking about the just and how they should live. So Romans talks about the just. Galatians talks about shall live or what it means to live as a just person, as a righteous person. And then Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, talks about this book, a verse in Habakkuk well, where it talks about faith. Because after Hebrews chapter 10 comes what? Hebrews chapter 11, right? That's pretty easy. What's in Hebrews chapter 11? The hall of faith. Incredible, incredible uh, uh, stories of those who walked in faith and gives us their testimony. So, so the just Romans shall live, Galatians, by faith, Hebrews. We don't have time to look at all three of those books this morning. I bet some of you are like, great. Okay. Um, but I, it's important to understand who we are in Christ. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, it says about Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Titus 2, 14. So, being justified means that not only that that Christ has saved us, not only is our advocate or our representative before the Father, because when we stand before the Father, he will not see you, he will see his Son. He will see the holiness of the Son, and I'm just going to be like, thank God. Thank God. I I almost feel at times I'm going to get in by the skin of my teeth anyway. I don't know, I just... Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm too self-aware. I don't know. But when the Father sees you, he sees you covered in the blood. He sees the work of Jesus, who is the propitiation, verse 2, for our sins. Propitiation is a nice church word, isn't it? That's a church word, right? What does it mean? I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's a church word. Um. It's an interesting word. Because, now follow me on this. Just have a few minutes on this, then we're going to be, be finished. It refers not only to the covering. And this goes all the way back to, to the book of Genesis where, where Moses, uh, I'm sorry, not Moses, Noah. Uh oh, my age is showing. No, Noah took some pitch and he covered the ark. He covered it, propitiated the ark. 
covered it with pitch so that the water wouldn't penetrate into the, into the uh, ship. Propitiation, this word also in, in the Septuagint refers to what's called the mercy seat. The mercy seat was that place just above the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember the Ark of the Covenant, that was the place where God met with man. And the Ark of the Covenant had a lid on top. And then on top of that lid were two angels that faced each other, touching wingtip to wingtip. And that space underneath the angels on top of the lid. You follow me on this? Too bad we don't have a diagram, but not, not take time to look it up. Uh, that was known as the mercy seat. The mercy seat, the place where God came and met with man and he provided mercy for them. The propitiation. And, and the, the, the word in the Greek refers both to covering and washing away. And they kind of intermix as they're used in the scripture. It refers both to covering of sin, but it also refers to washing away. Psalm 79, verse 9, which uses this word in the Greek. It says, Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name and deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your namesake. This word atonement refers to this idea of covering, but it also refers to this idea of your sins being washed away. So propitiation, and it's, again, it's a very broad word in the Greek, but it, it, it refers to this idea of, of an appeasement. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. An appeasement that was necessary because of our sin, but also the instrument of that appeasing. Abraham said to Isaac when he took Isaac up on Mount Moriah. I think it's around Genesis 42, if I'm not mistaken. Just kind of flashed into my brain. But when he takes Isaac up on the mountain because God has told him to do what? Take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him. And according to what we read in the scripture, Abraham's kind of like, okay. And you have to wonder what was going on in in their heads and hearts. Hebrews gives us some insight into that, knowing that Isaac was from which the promise was going to be fulfilled, and he had such faith in God that he believed that if necessary, God would raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham was an incredible man of faith. The just shall live by faith. He was a just man who lived by faith, but incredible faith. And he he goes up to sacrifice Isaac, and he puts Isaac on the altar. And Isaac at this time is probably much, he's a grown man. He could probably easily overpower his his, uh, old dad, Abraham, and yet he's submitted to what God is going to do. God stops him, and remember the story? There's a ram whose horns is caught in a thicket. And God says, use the ram to sacrifice. But the interesting thing about that story, among other things, is when Abraham and Isaac are going up the mountain and Abraham, Isaac says to Abraham, you have the wood, we've got the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And the, the, the Hebrew says, where Abraham responds to Isaac, the Hebrew says, God will provide 
himself a sacrifice. In other words, the Hebrew could be understood as God will provide through himself the sacrifice. God provided through himself the sacrifice of his son to not only cover our sins, but to wash away our sins, not only for us, but also for the whole world. I think John threw that in there because he wanted to throw a barb in Calvinist, personally. That's just my thought. Your mileage may vary. And what does that mean? I'm still, to be honest with you, I'm still working that one through. Although, although we see that in, in, in when John the Baptist, in John the Gospel chapter 1, sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the elect. Right? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in John chapter 4, the same expression is used in John 4, 42, where it says he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then Paul writes about this idea, First sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 through 21, where it says that God was reconciling the, uh, through Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ. When I read that, when I read and think about the fact that, that Jesus has been the propitiation, the covering, the washing away of our sin, not only for us who have received him, but for the entire world, that gives me a lot of hope for those who do not yet know him. That gives me a lot of hope for those who do not yet know him because I believe with all my heart that the call of God to humanity is to whosoever will. Now, I know your mileage is going to vary on this one, and I, but I don't apologize for that. I'm sorry, but I believe that that's God's heart for humanity. That the call is for whosoever will. The call has been given and it's been offered. Now, I don't want to get into the whole foreknowledge and the whole predestination, and all, but I am skirting the edge of this, aren't I? But what I'm saying is I'm reading here and I know what... John is saying, and I'm not trying to read into it. And he says that Jesus is the propitiation for the whole world. He says that he is the propitiation for the whole world. There is not an asterisk next to the word, word world that says he's referring to the elect. He's referring to the whole world because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Amen? Remember, John is being pastorally here, not necessarily doctrinally. He is expressing his heart, which I believe is also an expression of the heart of God. So I'll leave you with that, but also to leave you with that to encourage you to say, again, for those whom you know and love, 
who either do not know Christ or you don't know if they know. And the reality is you don't need to know. They need to know. God needs to know. That's between them and God. I understand that. But, but those whom, who you are not sure, continue to pray for them. Continue to intercede for them to God on their behalf. Continue to hold them up. That Paul talks about this to Timothy, that, and that they would be loosed from the captivity that Satan has placed upon their heart. Because Jesus wants to be the propitiation for them as much as he is for you. Amen? We have an advocate. And all I can say is, thank God we have an advocate. We have the perfect Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world because God demonstrated his love toward us that while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. Amen. Father, we do thank you for your great love. And Lord, we we ask that you would continue to do a work not only in our lives to to make us more like you, but we we pray for those that that either we don't know or we're pretty convinced they don't know you. We ask, Lord, that, that you would continue to do a work in their lives to bring them into your kingdom, to bring them into your family. That their hope would be nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. So we pray for sons and daughters and fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and friends and neighbors and co-workers and everybody in between, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to move on people's hearts, that they may desire to know you, that they may receive you as Lord and Savior. We pray, Lord, for them this morning. We pray too, Lord, a blessing upon us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your your work of salvation that is so complete. And that we can trust in it. And because you are righteous, you have imparted to us your righteousness. We thank you for that righteousness that you've given us, that place of being just. Help us, Lord, to walk in righteousness. And as your word says, the just shall live by faith. Help us to do that. Help us to live by faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.